Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis 29. Which must mean we're finished with chapter 28. The title of our message this morning is Faithfulness with the Little Things. Faithful with the little things. We are in a section in the book of Genesis where God is at work uh, in and through the patriarch Jacob. God raising up this special nation, the nation of Israel. As he's given promises to Abraham, then to Isaac, and now to Jacob. And so... Here we learn of God's dealings with this man, Jacob. In chapter 27, he has deceived his father. Um, He has also deceived his brother to the point where his brother is in a sort of a murderous rage against him. And so Jacob and his mother hatch a plan for him to leave Canaan and sojourn up north to a place called Haran. Why did Jacob leave? Well, the story they say is, well, Jacob needs to find a wife. It's a half-truth. He is going to Haran to seek a wife but he's also fleeing from the murderous rage of Esau. And as we studied in chapter 28, as he's making his way to Haran before he leaves Canaan, he stops in an area called Bethel. And it's there Jacob sees um, this staircase that joins heaven to the earth. And God takes that opportunity to reaffirm to Jacob the promises that he has given to the nation of Israel. So the story picks up there in chapter 29. We have Jacob's arrival in Haran, verses 1 through 14. The things that happen there resulting in Jacob's marriages, plural. He gets two wives. I don't recommend that, by the way, but that's what happened with him, verses 15 through 30. And the chapter sort of ends, verses 31 through 35, with his wife Leah becoming pregnant with four children. Not all at once, don't worry. Um, But four children are born, which begins the tribes of Israel. The tribes of Israel are very prominent in the Bible right down to the book of Revelation, where the world will be evangelized in the tribulation period by the 144,000 Jews coming from the 12 tribes. You might wonder, where did how did these tribes start? You start to get a glimpse of that at the end of chapter 29. Of course, all of that we can't cover today. We'll see if we can cover the first part of this, Jacob's arrival in Haran. Here's an outline that we're going to try to follow as we move through this. You'll notice verse 1, the journey. 
It says, Then Jacob went on his journey, and he came to the land of the sons of the east. The Hebrew literally reads here, he lifted up his feet. Um, we might put it this way in modern day vernacular. He had a little extra spring in his step. Now, why did he have a little extra spring in his step? Because of what God disclosed to him in chapter 28. The calling that was on his life. The work that God is going to do in and through Jacob in particular and the nation of Israel as a whole. The discovery of, in the midst of fleeing from a murderer, his importance and his significance in the plan of God. And that will pick up anybody's pace once they get a knowledge of that. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 18 in the King James Version, it says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. There's nothing that fatigues us more in life than sort of trudging through it without a glimpse of eternal things. Without a knowledge of God, without a knowledge of what God wants to do for us and through us, without a knowledge of our task here on the earth, without a knowledge of the glory that awaits us. And this is why taking in the word of God regularly and actually attending churches that faithfully teach the Bible is so important. Because as you do that, you get a glimpse of who you are. You get a glimpse of your destiny. You get a glimpse of your future. And once you get that perspective, it's interesting how it puts a little extra spring in your step. And life's drudgery doesn't seem so onerous quite so much anymore because you're headed to glory. And God wants to, while you're here, use your life to expand his purposes. That's why Jacob's pace as he's moving from Bethel in Canaan to Haran seems to pick up. Second part of verse 1, it says, He came to the sons of the east. The sons of the east is Haran. Um, That's where um, Abraham's family settled, his extended family. It's also where Abraham's servant went to seek a wife for Isaac. And this is where uh, uh, Rebekah came from. And now Jacob is fleeing up to that same area and he's going to meet someone very special, someone named Rachel. We know he's going to get married because God said in chapter 28, through you, your seed descendants will be innumerable. So obviously he has to meet the right woman so that these promises that God has given in chapter 28 can be perpetuated. He arrives at in Haran at a, at a well, and we read about that in verses 2 and 3. It says, He looked and he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside beside it, And from the well, they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. Verse 3, when all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place 
upon the mouth of the well. You'll notice here flocks, verse 2. You'll also notice this giant stone that resides over this well, which is used to water the flocks. A lot of people ask, well, is this the same area um, where Abraham's servant brought Rebekah back to Canaan? Yes, it's the same area, but it's probably not the identical well. The story of Abraham dispatching his servant to Haran to bring back Rebekah to Isaac is given in chapter 24 of Genesis. We've already studied that. That's a story that happened chronologically about 97, according to Bible chronologists, about 97 years earlier. And that was the same area, but it seemed to be a different well. This well is outside of the town, but the well in chapter 24 was by the town. But at any rate, there's a procedure that's described there in verse 3. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth and, and the well, of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. So they rolled this stone away in Haran to water these sheep. And then when that process was finished, they rolled the stone back. So this is where the sheep were fed. This is where the the sheep received sustenance and nourishment. And I understand that this, what I'm about to say, is not exactly in the immediate context, but I can't help but being reminded of what Jesus said to Peter in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. He asked him, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And each time Peter said, or Jesus to Peter, I should say, said, feed my sheep. Second time around, tend my sheep. Third time around, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs first time. Second response of Jesus to Peter, tend my sheep. Third response of Jesus to Peter, feed my sheep. The feeding of the sheep of God is obviously something that is paramount in the design of God for the church. And by the way, how are the sheep within the church to be fed? Well, Jesus answered that in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4 when he said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The function of spiritual leadership, the function of a pastor, is to feed God's sheep. Sugarland Bible Church exists to feed God's sheep as we move through the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. If the sheep are malnourished, then you need to look into the pulpit and ask, why are the shepherds not feeding Christ's sheep? Sugarland Bible Church does not exist for Sugarland Bible Church's sake. Sugarland Bible Church exists for the people of God. It's a place for the people of God, among, among many other things, to be fed the Word of God. 
And you look at so many ministries today, and it's almost like they have lost sight of why they are even in existence. They talk about themselves. They talk about their financial needs. They spend a lot of time trying to not feed the sheep, but sometimes fleece the sheep. And there's such an emphasis on their budget, and there's such an emphasis on their needs you sort of start to wonder, well, maybe they've lost sight of why they exist. I mean, if if a ministry exists so that the people can support the ministry, then that's not a ministry anymore. The ministry is not for the sake of the ministry. The ministry is for the sake of the people of God. God's people need to be fed God's word. And so your expectation when you come to Sugarland Bible Church is to be taught the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, even as I am speaking in our, in our children's ministry that's meeting simultaneously with this, and our youth group that meets before this worship session, that is what is happening in all of these classrooms. The Word of God is being taught. And may the Lord help us if we ever move away from that and move into some other task or project, we would be neglecting what Jesus told Peter to do as a spiritual leader in the church age. And I just bring this up because I couldn't help but think of it because the sheep here are being fed. It talks here about this stone that they would roll in front of this well. The sheep before that would receive pasture and then they would roll the stone back. I can't help but thinking about the time period that we're in right now, next week being Palm Sunday. So make sure to bring your palms with you next week, Palm Sunday. You can bring two, right? Following Palm Sunday, the next Sunday is going to be uh, Resurrection Sunday, where we commemorate the resurrection of Jesus, Palm Sunday being the triumphal entry of Jesus, and how those two events, particularly Resurrection Sunday, culminates in the rolling away of the stone. Matthew chapter 28 I believe it's around verse 2, speaks of how an angel rolled away the, the stone. The tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. Jesus is different than any other historical person that's ever walked the face of the earth. He's the only person who a script in terms of messianic prophecy was written about him in advance. No person has been born into a world where a script was written hundreds and thousands of years before he showed up. And Jesus was also unique because he claimed to be God and said, I'll prove to be God by predicting my own death and then resurrecting from the dead and then pulling it off. It's one thing to predict it. It's another thing to pull it off. We do not serve a dead Messiah. We do not serve a dead Savior. We serve a living Savior. He is alive. He rose from the dead and he ministers to us from the Father's right hand. 
in his high priestly session following his ascension. And there have been the greatest of minds that have tried to explain away the empty tomb. None of them have been able to do it accurately nor successfully. Why not? Because the tomb was empty. This is what makes Jesus different. It's what makes him unique. It's what makes him one of a kind. And now that um, Jacob has completed his journey, now that he is in Haran, now that some information about the well has been given, he gets into a conversation with the locals in Haran. And the conversation involves three things, location, family, and procedure. Notice, first of all, location. Verse 4, Jacob said to them, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. That information is given to show us that Jacob ended up at the right place. He is in Haran, sometimes called Padan Aram. Uh, you'll notice back in verse 1, the people living in that area were called the kings of the east. Haran is that top circle. It doesn't really show up well on a map, but if you look at Canaan there in the west, bordering the Mediterranean Sea, it's about a journey of 450 miles. Uh, Jacob wants to know, has he reached the right place? And so he asks this question, Where are you from? And there they are all gathered at this well for this time of feeding for the sheep. And they say, we are from Haran. So location is good. And now he asks a question about family. And he does that in verses 5 and 6. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And here is Rachel, Rachel, his daughter coming with the sheep. There is, um, as we've learned in the book of Genesis, sort of a family tree. Terah, a descendant of Shem, who was a descendant of Noah, Terah, had three children, Abraham, we've read a lot about him in our study, uh, Nahor, and then some others that are mentioned. From Nahor, who was married to a woman named Milcah, came a series of descendants. One of those is named Bethuel. Bethuel is interesting because that from Bethuel comes Rebecca, who was married to I, who would ultimately be married to Isaac, and ultimately this man named Laban, who is sort of going to take center stage in this story. It's interesting when you look at verse, uh, let's see, verse five. It says, "He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor?'" Well, actually, when you look at this very carefully, Laban is not the son of Nahor. Laban is the son of Bethuel, making him the grandson of Nahor. 
So if he is the grandson of Nahor, why does the Bible call him the son of Nahor? Well, the truth of the matter is the word son in the Bible can refer to an ancestor, but not an immediate ancestor. Jesus is frequently called the son of David. And yet, Luke 18, verse 38, he called out saying, Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. And yet, Jesus obviously is not the immediate son of David. There's about a thousand years between Jesus and David. So the word son here does not have to mean an immediate descendant. It can be a phrase that can skip a generation or generations and refer to an ancestor. Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it this way in verses 5 and 6. Came Jacob's inquiry of his family, and Jacob said unto them, Know ye Laban, the son of of Nahor. Laban was actually the son of Bethuel, and here the word son is used in the sense of a grandson. Well, gee, Pastor, what a bunch of boring genealogical information. Who really cares? Well, here's why you should care. What you're being subjected to in the culture over and over again is the fact that the Bible has mistakes in it. In fact, when you watch A&E, the History Channel, Mysteries of the Bible, they'll bring on all these experts, usually from Harvard, as I like to say. And they spend so much of their time, you know, attacking the Bible. I mean, who can believe the Bible? It says, you know, it doesn't say grandson here, it says son. But the truth of the matter is, linguistically, son can refer to just an ancestor in general. Because the truth of the matter is, your children and your grandchildren are going to hear this kind of thing. And they might even hear this in a, in a classroom, an academic setting. And they're, they're being taught, conditioned to believe that the Bible has mistakes in it. And by the way, if the Bible has mistakes in it, how can you trust anything it says? It's like dealing with uh, uh, an attorney who is arguing before a jury. All a, an attorney really has to do to discredit a witness is to find one little problem in his testimony or her testimony. Because he knows that when the jurors go back into the jury room and deliberate in preparation for the verdict, they're going to think to themselves, well, that witness has an inconsistency and a mistake. It's little, but we can use it to discredit everything that witness says. That's the game that the devil is running right now concerning the Bible. He wants you to believe that nobody could believe this. Nobody with any academic or intellectual sophistication could, can, can believe a story like this and look at the mistakes that are in it. And when your children and grandchildren hear about this, who do you think they're going to come to for answers? They're going to come to you. And you need to be in an environment where you are being prepared or equipped for your ministry of dissuading Doubts in the minds of your children and grandchildren. That's why I bring up these types of things. Not to just bore you about can son mean an ancestor or does it have to refer to an always an immediate descendant. So 
Jacob in Haran asked this question, um, do you know Haran? Excuse me, do you know Laban? And the answer is given, verse 5, yes, we know him. Verse 6, is he doing well? Just a way of saying, is he doing okay? How's it going with him? Uh, the answer is, things are well with him. Oh, and by the way, end of verse 6, Rachel's coming with him to this well where the sheep are going to be provided for. Rachel is not yet visible, but she's going to be involved in the procedure that's described in verses 2 and 3. Rachel was to be among those to arrive before the moving of the stone. Who exactly is Rachel? Verse 6, Rachel is Laban's daughter. What God is doing here is he is putting into motion a connection between Jacob and Rachel so that the promises to Israel can continue right down to the 12 tribes. Because Rachel is going to be the mother of not all the tribes as we will see, but several of them. You go down to verses 7 and 8 and you see a procedure taking place here. Verse 7, it looks to me like Jacob, who is in Haran, away from Canaan, is sort of speaking like a professional shepherd, which he is. So he asks this question, verse 7, he said, Behold, it is still high day, it is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. Jacob's inquiry as a professional shepherd. Basically what he's saying is it's not time of the larger herds to gather. So since they are gathered, let's water and feed the sheep now. And the answer basically verse 8 from the folks at the well in Haran is that's not how we do things around here. Jacob being 450 miles away from Canaan in sort of a different system, a different culture, would not understand how they operated. But they answer in verse 8, but we cannot until all the flocks are gathered and they roll the stone away from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. Jacob says, water them now. That's what you ought to do. And they say, well, that's not what we do. We let the sheep gather. Then we roll the stone away. Then we water them. Then we roll the stone back over the well. So the answer is to water them now is against the customs of this place. And the reason this is being described is Rachel is coming with the sheep. And God is using an ordinary circumstance to unite two people together. Which is how God works. You know, many times I've asked God to work in my life and I'm looking for some kind of, you know, vision or highlighting highlighting writing in the sky or something, an audible voice. And... Frequently, God will do some of the greatest things he's ever done in my life as I'm just going about daily life and daily business. As you're walking with the Lord, you don't really have to worry about, gosh, am I going to miss God's plan for my life? Just go about what you normally do. Go about your normal business. 
And you'll see that God takes the ordinary and uses the ordinary and converts it into the extraordinary. Where he is uniting Jacob and Rachel together through the ordinary, mundane circumstances of life. And then you go down to verses 9 through 12, which is where this paragraph is driving us, where Jacob meets Rachel. Notice, first of all, Rachel's arrival. Verse 9. While he was speaking with them, the locals, Jacob, Rachel came with her father's sheep, who's her father, Laban. Now look at this. For she was a shepherdess. She was involved also in taking care of, grazing, feeding, providing for sheep. And that's why I've entitled this message, Faithfulness in the Little Things. It is interesting to me that some of the greatest people God calls to do extraordinary things for him are doing something as simple before God calls them and as humble as shepherding, which is not what you would call a glamorous profession. I mean, you won't get interviewed on Fox News or anything being a shepherd. It's just part of the mundane chores of life. And it is very interesting to me that so many of God's choicest servants had in their background shepherding, taking care of some of the basic mundane activities of life. Rachel is going to be a big deal because she is going to become the matriarch of the nation of Israel. And what was she doing? Was she was she born with some kind of silver spoon in her mouth or something? No, she was just taking care of ordinary life. Moses, the lawgiver, um, was in that uh, identical situation as well. Moses was involved in just taking care of ordinary business, ordinary things. And, of course, I'm fumbling around with my papers here because I had my verses all written out on a nice list, which seems to have conveniently disappeared. So somebody needs to bind Satan out there. But over in the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, you'll discover that Moses was just a simple shepherd. You will see the same thing about David in 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 11. In fact, when Jesse was confronted by the man of God, bring out your children. I need to anoint the next king of Israel. Jesse brings out the kids and the man of God says, is that all the kids you got? Because these aren't the next king. Well, there's a little kid in the back. You don't want to talk to him, do you? What's he doing? Well, he's taking care of the sheep. You know, he's getting the car washed. He's mowing the lawn. He's just doing simple things of life. Obviously, he's not going to be the next king of Israel. And the man of God says, bring him out. And he says, that's the guy. And you find this over and over again in the Bible where God promotes people who are faithful 
in the little things and the simple things of life. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 11 says, And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. Behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. It's, It's an ancient principle of Scripture. It's articulated by Jesus in Luke chapter 16 and verse 10. It says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Hey, do you want to do great things for God? I think we all do at the end of the day. How does God select people to do great things for him? He selects people that are faithful in the little things. Because the thought process is, if they're faithful unto God in the little things, then when you put their character of faithfulness on a larger stage, with more visibility, they're going to be faithful there as well. See, what, what do you do when you promote someone who is unfaithful in something small? You just give them a larger stage to manifest their own lack of character. He who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful with much. Now go back 97 years and think about Rebecca when she was brought out of Haran as well. What was she doing exactly? Genesis 24 verse 14 says, Now may it be the girl to whom I say, Please let down your jar so that I may drink. And who answers drink and I will water your camels also. See that? May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown the loving kindness to my master. Genesis twenty-four seventeen through 19. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little from the jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered the jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink... She said, I will draw also, also, also. This is someone that went the extra mile for people. This is someone that went the extra distance. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also from your camels until they have finished drinking. I'll take care of you, and I'll take care of your camels. That, by the way, was the prayer request. The prayer request was, I'll know that the woman is right for Isaac, the servant says, if she offers a drink, not just to me, but to my camels. It's an interesting insight into Rebecca's character. I mean, she was the type of person that dotted every I and crossed every T. She was the type of person that you could look into her life and you couldn't see any habitual problems. 
And that is the character of the person that God chose for Isaac. The same kind of thing is happening here with Rachel. I mean, she's not just sitting around, you know, saying, okay, I want to be the matriarch of Israel. Probably was the furthest thing from her mind. Nor was David sitting around saying, I want to be the first king of the United Kingdom. Actually, the second king following Saul. They weren't thinking in those ways at all. They were just faithful in little tiny things. And God promoted. I think in the announcements, we had some information about the elder deacon nomination selection process. Which raises a very interesting question. How do you select leadership for a church? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 tells you. It says, he, that's the potential elder, must be one who manages his own household well. Don't ask primarily about his education. Don't ask primarily about how big the church was that he came from before. Look at his family. If he can manage his household well, and that character of faithfulness is elevated to a larger platform, then they're going to do fine managing God's church. But if their family is running wild, without any organization, without any leadership, what do you think such a person is going to do in the church of God? His deficient character is just being given a larger stage, which will lead to disaster. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? You see what's being spoken of here again and again and again in the scripture, whether it's Rebecca, whether it's Rachel, whether it's Moses, whether it's David, is the principle that Jesus articulated in Luke 16, verse 10. He who is faithful with a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Do you want God to bless your life? Do you want God to use you? Then take care of the little things. Be diligent there. Don't seek great things for yourself. Seek to be faithful exactly where God puts you. And as you do that, watch how he starts to promote you. It's a simple principle of scripture that for whatever reason almost gets no airtime today in Christianity. He who is faithful with something small can be trusted with something great. This is the future matriarch of the nation of Israel, Rachel, who is being faithful as a shepherdess. And then Jacob sees Rachel for the first time. It's right there in verse 10. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brothers, his mother's brother, excuse me, and the sheep of Laban, the, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother.
the first sight is kind of interesting in the Bible. You remember when Isaac saw Rebekah for the very first time. It says in Genesis 24, 64, and 65, Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, as she's coming back to Canaan from Haran, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servants, Who is the man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. She knew instinctively there was something special about Isaac. And I think Jacob, when he sees Rachel, instinctively knows there's something different about her. Something actually special about her. Because when you drop down to Genesis 29... Well, I'm having a great time up here today. Twenty. Thank you. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. He saw something very special in her that caused him to fall in love. Love is tossed around so frequently in our culture, most of us have no idea what it means. If you want to understand what love is, read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, which says, among other things, love is patient. People today are mistaking lust for love. Lust and love are two different things. Lust can't wait to get. Love, by definition, can't wait to give. The love that Jacob had for Rachel was so profound that he was willing to work, as we're going to see later in our story, most likely next week, seven years for her hand. Most people today, quite frankly, would not even last seven days because they're not operating by a true love principle. They're operating by a lust principle. And this is how God is using the ordinary events of life to create the extraordinary. This union between Jacob and Rachel, through which will come many of the 12 tribes of Israel, where Rachel will be elevated to matriarch over the nation of Israel. And she's doing something as common and as simple as tending sheep. Then you drop down to verses 10 through 12 and you see Jacob's reaction. He rolls back the stone, second part of verse 10. Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then you drop down to verse 11 and there's a greeting and there's a kiss between the two. It says in verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Why is he lifting his voice and weeping? Why is he kissing her? 
Some would say, well, he just sort of discovered a common family bond. Charles Ryrie says, Jacob kissed Rachel, a proper greeting for cousins, and wept for joy at finding his relatives. I think that's part of it, but I think he's fallen in love with her. Love biblically defined. And that seems to be the clear intimation when you connect uh, verse 11 down with verse verse 20. And then Jacob finally identifies himself. Uh, first part of verse 12. It says, Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. You have, again, this... In many of the English translations, it says brother, but brother can be understood linguistically as nephew. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says in verse 12, he identifies himself and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother. Here the word brother is used in the sense of nephew. In other words, the Hebrew language will allow this since he was Laban's nephew. Also, he was Rebecca's son. Rebecca was Rachel's aunt. So the Hebrew words that are used here would allow for this more expanded meaning, generic relative. Again, I bring this up because people bring these kinds of things up, as I said earlier, to discredit the Bible. And then notice Rachel's response. She ran and told her father. Her father is Laban. This leads to a connection or between Jacob now and Laban, verses 13 and 14. You see the meeting between Jacob and Laban, verse 13, and then Jacob becomes Laban's guest, verse 14. Notice verse 13. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son... He ran to him and embraced him and kissed him and he brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says of these verses, Genesis 29, verses 13 and 14. He says they describe Jacob in the home of Laban with verse 13 recording the meeting between Jacob and Laban. The timing was, and it came to pass, when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's sons, or son. Laban's sister, that would be Rebecca, had left 97 years earlier. So there's an awful lot of family history for these two to catch up on. And so Laban, verse 13, responds to Jacob. Also, verse 13, Jacob tells Laban the whole family history and what's happened in the land of Canaan over the last 97 years. I mean, it's an astonishing thing that's happening here when you think about it. And yet God is using the ordinary circumstances of life to bring about the extraordinary. The paragraph ends with Jacob becoming Laban's guest. Laban said to him, surely you are bone or my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. 
Notice this expression here, my bone and my flesh. Does that ring a bell? goes back, does it not, to the book of Genesis, chapter 2 and verse 23, which says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. In other words, Jacob is using this expression here, and Laban is using this expression here to show that there's a family tie. It's just a family history he wasn't aware of in terms of what transpired over the last 97 years. And then verse 14, it sort of ends with Jacob now in the home of Laban. Laban said to him, verse 14, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and stayed with him one month. And so what you see now coming together is the forces which will bring two people together in marriage, Jacob and Rachel, so that the messianic line leading to Jesus Christ can be fulfilled. If you are simply a New Testament Christian and you only read the New Testament, and you only read about Jesus and what he did for us and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and you have not investigated the Old Testament, then you have no knowledge of the details that God put into motion time and time and time again to make sure that there was a line coming from the nation of Israel leading to Jesus. Long before Jesus did his work, God the Father did a lot of work in pre-Christ, if I can use that expression, pre the pre-Jesus age, putting together this intricate genealogy leading to Jesus Christ. Which must mean God loves you an awful lot. If God is going to work so meticulously in history to put these marriages together, whether it's Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, so that Jesus can come through that lineage and accomplish his mission through his death, burial, resurrection and ascension, God must love you like there's no tomorrow. And how foolish it is to look at the person of Jesus Christ who offers us salvation. Who represents the intricate plan of God in Old Testament times. And to just have a calloused attitude towards him. When God was putting all of this together, he was thinking about you as an individual. He was thinking about your specific need for salvation. And so he worked... And he worked, and he worked, and he worked, and he worked in the finest details to make sure that that salvation through Jesus became available. The truth of the matter is, everything has been paid for. 
Jesus' final words on the cross were, it is finished. The floodgates of salvation have been opened to the human race. Floodgates, which would be an impossibility without the specific work of God, as we're reading about here in Old Testament times. Which means somebody loves you. Somebody died for you. Somebody has a plan for you. And that person is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says it is finished or said it is finished, the only thing left for you to do is to receive what he has done for you as a free gift. There is no good work that you can possibly do to curry God's favor other than to receive the good work Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. And a good work which God clearly set up way in advance by putting marriage after marriage, person after person together. And so our exhortation to people listening, either in the building or online, as the Spirit convicts them of their need to trust in Christ, is to place their faith exclusively in Jesus Christ for their salvation and for the safekeeping of their soul. Becoming a Christian is not a 12-step program. It's a single step where you hear the gospel and you believe it. Hearing it is my job as a teacher, as an evangelist, Receiving it is your job. The Holy Spirit's job is to take my words and to make them real into your heart and life. But no amount of proclamation and no amount of Holy Spirit illumination can accomplish what you need to do. You have to receive this gift. It's like somebody giving you a gift at Christmas time, all wrapped up. It's especially made for you, but you never take it, and you never open it up. Well, it's, it's a gift that's yours, you just haven't received it. That's how most of the world today is living. The, the whole world is savable. But because most people either have hardened hearts towards God or they're too busy with other things, have never actually received the gift that Jesus entered history to give us, which was salvation. And so that's why we conclude all of our teaching services with a very strong exhortation that if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your need to trust in Christ for salvation, that you'll do it now. And what a time to do it. This time of the year as we get ready for Palm Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, to trust Jesus and be a newborn child of God in this season, what a great thing that would be. And so we just invite anybody within the sound of my voice, either in the building, listening online, listening to archives after the fact, to trust in the person of the Savior which God worked so diligently in history to make sure that this moment would arrive and the gospel would show up on your doorstep. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk.
but this would be a good time to break the material. I know I'm letting you guys out a little early today, but I've kept you late enough so many times. I've got quite a debt to pay off, don't I? But we've got Jacob's arrival, verses 1 through 14. Next week we'll take a look at Jacob's marriages, verses 15 through 30. And then the beginning of Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for today, grateful for your word, grateful for your truth, grateful for the time of the calendar that we're living in where we focus on Jesus and what he's done for us. Help us to walk these things out this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Amen.